Yeah, buddy. Welcome back to the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Super stoked to have David Harmer on um, from the GB Great British Athletics team. He's got a vast knowledge from training superior world-class athletes uh, for the likes of Mo Farah, just to name one. David's been all around the world uh, with his GB camp to crazy places like Ethiopia and Kenya, high altitude running camps with the world elite runners. And uh, he's just an all-round, very level-headed, cool guy who's got some superior knowledge for all you runners out there. And given 2020 with all the gym closures, let's say uh, there's been a lot of miles pounded on the streets. So let's jump straight in. There is a few um, technical difficulties through the podcast with some the reception dipping in and out. So apologies, but, you know, control the controllables. There's not much more I can do about that. But yeah, let us know what you think. Enjoy. David Harmer. Jay Smith. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Thank you. Very excited to sit down and have this conversation with you. Um, Before we dive into uh, the world that is your world, give the guys that are listening a little intro. To what is your current profession? All right. Firstly, thanks for inviting me on. It's good to have a good chat about training anytime. But um, yeah, so my name's David Harmer. Um, I'm a national endurance coach for British Athletics, and I'm based at our National Performance Institute here in Loughborough. So it's kind of like a, a training centre, I guess. Uh, we have a few different training centres around the the UK um, and Loughborough is kind of our main centralised base so we have a lot of uh, the medical and therapy support is centralised here um, but we also have some coaches we have seven kind of national uh, performance coaches that are based out of Loughborough slash Birmingham um, and um, I'm, I'm one of those coaches so that's essentially my role and uh, I, I work with individual athletes um, that are training towards major global championships for British athletics so like your world champs European champs Olympics um, etc and then I also support um, endurance athletes that are on our world-class plan so those that are funded by lottery funding or world-class plan funding to train for Olympics Um, and they're spread out all over the country and across the world um, those athletes but um, we do come together throughout the year well in a normal year for training camps uh, and for endurance that means um, a lot of the time altitude training camps so that's another big part of my role is supporting those camps and the athletes and the coaches um, that are part of that so it's it's not really just athletes that I directly coach but it's also working with athletes to support them and their coaches elsewhere to make sure they get what they need and sometimes that's very little um, for some athletes they, they're fully set up and uh, they're, they're very experienced. Um, others might have just come onto the program and need help. And so you have a bit more input and it might be advice for the coach or might be practical advice on how to get around in Kenya, you know, when you're at a training camp or uh, might be where to stay or it, it could be anything. So it's just supporting those athletes and coaches that are around the program as well, not just the ones here in the UK. Um, so that's kind of my role. Where's the uh, most extreme camp that you've ever been involved in or part of the world? Uh, Ethiopia was pretty um, different. Um, fun, though, like one of my mm. favourite camps as well. Uh, we, um, 
we were stopped um, by a herd of camels on one run. So um, that stopped the long run. <laughs> um, so I've never had that before. Not well, not on the M1 anyway. Um, <laughs> so that, that was good. Um, Kenya's just a unique environment. I think it's a, you know, it's the home of, uh, well, Ethiopia and Kenya, but home of distance running. And there's a lot of history with Kenya. So it's, it's definitely a place that most runners want to go, you know, kind of a Mecca to make a journey there is really good. Iten is the town in Kenya at high altitudes. So that's, that's been, re that's really good. It's very basic there, but very inspiring because, um, you just get back to simple things like washing your clothes in a bucket outside your, you know, accommodation and um, eating very clean food, good food that's grown there, like in the back of your place. So it's very healthy. You lose a little bit of weight and that's not necessarily because you're training any harder. It's because you're just eating food with no processed, you know, ingredients in it, which is mm -hmm. fantastic. So you come back and you are craving a McDonald's and chocolate biscuits when you get back. But, um it's a good detox for the body going there you know and you realize why it's not you know people talk about genetics in different athletes and these people are you know born you know distance runners or whatever but it's i think it's very simple it's like a simple way of life and they train hard but they recover really well as well they take their time and recover between and eat good food and um don't overcomplicate things you know they're not overcomplicated by iphones and you know, social media and eating like bad food and going to restaurants and staying up late. And so life's simple. Um, mm. So I think that's a big ingredient of why they're great athletes. Yeah, they definitely have a history of producing some phenomenal athletes. And, it, you know, for someone who's, who's never been to that country and experienced the sort of life that those guys live, um, you know, and I hear stories and I've read stories that, some of them would run like a marathon to school and a marathon back and that would just be considered you know a way of life because they didn't have a car or there wasn't the sort of transport links to the nearest sort of education facility is that is that true or is that a little bit of a myth i think it's um i think maybe a long time ago that was probably the case like or could have been the case for some individuals but from what i experienced I don't think that's the reason that they're so good. I think there is, um, I think by, they are obviously, they're more active because to, uh, you just have to, you do walk around more and you're at high altitude, you know, so you're already, um, you're already, your body's already adapted to um, a harder environment as it is just being living, just walking around, you know. Um, but I think it's their approach to life that's different from our very westernized life. Um, you know, even Kipchoge, who, you know, is broke two hours for the marathon. He talks about, I mean, that guy's, he's made, he must have made a lot of money now, but he still, he only lives two hours away from where he trains, but he l decides to live in the training camp. He doesn't live at home. So he goes away for seven, eight weeks in the training camp, then goes home for a couple of weeks, then goes back to the training camp because he wants that discipline of camp life, training camp life. Yeah. Um, no distractions exactly no distractions and as much as you know like you know people will say well family's not a distraction you know and but it, but it's little things like um you know mo mo farah talks about like um he's very similar like he'll be away on training camp a lot of the year but he'll say like if he's at home in london it's little things like if he's if he's putting his kids to bed 
and you, you know you're a father as well like you're cleaning up your kids plates after dinner just a small thing but if they've got like a little bit of food left a little bit of rice or a little bit of chicken left up you, you eat it don't you you don't throw it all away like because you don't want to waste food yeah. and that's the same for any parent right that goes for that so those little things add up like eat a little bit extra food there you eat you get them an ice cream or some sweets you have a few it's just natural isn't it um and you don't do that when you're in training camp you eat what you eat you know you drink what you drink you recover more you sleep more if you've got kids you might be up in the middle of the night you might be you know taking them to school doing other things that you might be just caring for him that wears you down like being a parent's hard you know so um you're not going to maybe sleep as much you're up early um it distracts from the your ability to solely focus on your training so that's why i think those athletes in those countries tend to do better because their life is focused on not only training but recovering i think our our athletes in the uk train just as hard um but i don't think they recover as well i think that's the one thing east africans do better than anyone is they recover well you know um and that's what you learn when you go there what are some of their recovery protocols or or you know what, what do they do different to the westernized they rest they rest and they don't like um you know we were just talking before we came on air about it's hard to um it's hard to get to sleep um or you know uh kind of relax de-stress if you've been looking at a screen right so we, we all now like mm -hmm. have to look at screens for work especially during covid you know months we're, we're on zoom or google me or teams every day and it's hard to get away from your phone or a screen well if you don't have any internet <laughs> you can't do that so in kenya like if you get back from training instead of like athletes think sitting down and playing on their phone or playing video games is recovering because they're sitting they're resting in terms of physically mm -hmm. but mentally the brain's still processing so it's not shutting down it's not um you know when your computer shuts down and it's installing the updates you know while it's shut down it doesn't do that while it's running like your iphone tells you you're going to install overnight right so mm -hmm. that's when your body does the same thing it, it when it's on shutdown it recovers and it upregulates everything and gets you back to normal well if your brain is continuously working you aren't able to make those recovery adjustments and so i think that's a big key is if you're in a remote area you're not on your phone and you're not on your laptop you literally go to sleep because you're knackered um because you're high up as well and so you do you sleep better um it's, it's probably more restful sleep if that makes sense and then just um it's just yeah it's just a simplified way of life de-stress everything you know um keep things simple and you can keep your, they keep themselves occupied by doing like kipchoge does he has he he literally he cleans the training camp with all the other athletes he is there with you know he he might be a millionaire but he's still sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets and it, when you're running Kenya there's red clay that gets stuck on your shoes and so you know you want to clean your shoes every day we don't do that really here in the UK we don't clean our shoes after every some people might but I've, I've never cleaned my shoes after a run but in Kenya you have to because the clay just, just collects and so you'll see people literally with yeah. a bucket cleaning the shoes cleaning the clothes cleaning the training camp and that that gives you you know it gives you something to do but it also frees your mind you're not distracted by you know phones and internet so you do you just recover better you know it's nothing there's no like special mm -hmm. gadgets 
um milky tea sugary tea that's what they drink a lot of the time in the afternoon jam and bread it's real simple you know like that's your recovery snack between runs jam yeah. and bread and milky tea yeah um they love sugar and mm. like don't think that you know like um african runners are any different from european runners they love sugar they, they drink coke all day if they could <laughs> um so um yeah, but milky tea is easy sorry some serious calories they must be burning through some serious yeah. calories yeah yeah exactly and when you're up at high altitude if anyone that's been up high in for, for skiing even um you do you burn more calories you know you're burning more carbs particularly um and you feel hungry a lot of the time and mainly because your hunger drives your thirst as well so you get dehydrated your body needs water but it what it does is it it tells you you're hungry as well so you do get sometimes you get hungry because you're thirsty if that makes sense um yeah. but um yeah you, you you can eat a lot more at altitude and not put on weight it's hard like people say they find it hard to put on mass at altitude you know if you're trying to as a power athlete it's harder to build mass muscle mass at high altitude because that you're continuously burning fuels you know so just to break it down then the altitude camps and this is my very basic understanding of it um but because there's less oxygen the higher you go the harder it is to perform the same task if you was down at sea level yeah essentially so the uh, if you wanted to be really pernickety there's the same amount of oxygen in the air it's just the partial pressure um is lower so it doesn't drive the ability for the body to get that oxygen out of the air and get it to the muscle is reduced so that's just and and physiologists are probably crying with the way i just described that um but it's a lower partial pressure not necessarily lower oxygen that's in the air so it, it's just it's just a different way of thinking about it it's apples and oranges but yeah it's mm -hmm. harder to breathe um it's harder to get the oxygen to the muscle uh, or to the heart or to the brain and so your body works harder so the heart rate goes up in order to compensate until you adjust so until your body slowly adjusts to that altitude and it will some people are quicker than others at changing but you will adapt because if you didn't adapt you you would die um so everyone adapts it's just people are slower or faster responders and then once you adapt your heart rate starts to go back down your ventilation rate goes back down um and you adjust to to that environment but you still won't be able to perform necessarily as well as you would at sea level if that makes sense for endurance type activities right so what does an endurance coach do what's you know what's like a real basic sort of higher level template version of, of what you do you are you are you given a group of athletes to work with and then do you sort of break down the specific goals and targets of these athletes identify uh strengths and weaknesses how do you sort of how do you attack your your role i think for uh it's um for in, although the the banner the my title is endurance it ranges from 800 meters to the marathon it is in and that uh, endurance events in the Olympics also include the walks as well. But I don't coach any walkers, but it would include the walks as well, which is there's a 20K and a 50K walk. Um, so you can imagine an 800 meter male 
um, is very tall, rangy, powerful. They're almost like a sprinter. And then you've got a 50K walker, female, could be 45 kilos, you know. Um, so, and, and the, the, it's very different training, you know. So it's, um, and the needs are very different and the training uh, plan and goals will look very different. So it depends. The answer to the question is it really depends on the athletes you're working with at the time. We don't necessarily... As um, national performance coaches, we're not given a group, so we're we're essentially we're based at the training centre, and um, I've been contacted by athletes, or over the years I've worked with athletes, had a good relationship, and then they've asked me to start working with them, and that's kind of it. Ha happens very organically, mm -hmm. um, and if you have success, you get a few more, and you know then you find out what kind of capacity you have with your other role parts of your job, you know, so. A club coach at your local athletic club might have 20, 30 athletes in their group. You know, you might see them training at the local track and um, that's fairly normal, you know, uh, a club. Um, but on the higher end, at the high end, uh, Olympic type athletes, you, it's very hard to coach a big group like that and give everyone their individual attention. So those groups can be a lot smaller unless you have assistant coaches and other people. So when I was a college coach, a university coach in Colorado, I had uh, I had about 25 to 30 athletes that I worked with, but I had um, volunteer assistants and paid um, assistant coaches that worked with me to coach those athletes. Uh, and I had another like we had another head coach who worked with another group of athletes of 25 to 30 athletes, you know. So um, that scenario, lots of athletes, my current scenario I probably work with three or four athletes on a daily basis um, that are like high level full time athletes and then support other athletes on the program and younger athletes and coaches as well. Um, but that might just be with phone calls or when we're on training camps, it, not necessarily day to day. Mm -hmm. So it's so, very different. So talk to me about your journey then, because I can't imagine you just rocking up at Loughborough, Loughborough and banging on the door and say, hi, I want to come and teach your you know, elite level, world-class Olympic athletes. How, how did you sort of get to where you are now and what's your journey? Oh, it's very convoluted. Um, and it didn't start with athletics. It started with uh, football, really, for me. Like, I, I'm I'm like, well, like you, Jay, I, I like, uh, when I was a kid, I loved all sport. I just, you know, anything to get me out of going to class and doing maths or <laughs> RE or English, I was up for it. So, played cricket, tennis, football, um, everything um, in school and really loved football uh, and and started to get um, kind of some success in running as well. So enjoyed running and athletics. Um, but when I when I went to I went to university in Kingston in in London and to study sports science. And I've always been interested in sport, always interested in athletes and performance. But um, didn't know what kind of capacity or role I wanted to do that more probably more so sports science is what I wanted to do that's what I went to study at Kingston um, and I was really fortunate to study under a really good um, physiologist um, and a gr great group of staff that were there um, and that really kind of ignited my passion for sports and performance and working in that field full-time that's what I knew I wanted to do that um, but I wasn't quite sure in what capacity and um, 
So I, I did a year at Kingston, did my first year. And then my second year, I got an opportunity to play football in America. Um, so our football, not American football, obviously. <laughs> Looking at me. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to be a quarterback anytime soon, that's for sure. Um, so I got a scholarship to play at um, the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Um, uh, so a decent school. They were decent at s soccer. Um, and um, went over there in 2002, it was. Um, so nearly 20 years ago now. <laughs> um, so went over there, went to play football, um, did, enjoyed it. Um, wasn't, um, I didn't get like fully, there's a system called the NCA system in America, the college system. And if you've played sport in the U any other country, and you've received money to play, then you're not allowed to participate in America. So I'd, although I hadn't like signed any professional contracts or anything, played at that level, I'd played for teams that paid players, like semi-professional teams, but only, you know, youth level and reserves kind of when I was 18. So um, they were doing checks and investigations to make sure I hadn't been paid. Um, so I was still an amateur. And um, while they were doing that, I just started um, doing my own. I was doing my own fitness because I wasn't allowed to train with the team. So I was doing reps on a track at the university and the, the cross country coach just happened to be watching while I was out there um, and asked me if I would come and run. And I said, oh, I don't run anymore. I, I'm here to play football. And he offered me a, a pair of like Adidas shoes if I came and ran <laughs> uh, and trained with the team. And he, he, he basically blackmailed me into doing it. And, uh, so I did. So I started running and I got a scholarship to run um, as well. Um, so I ended up running cross country that autumn and then doing track in the spring. And uh, that got me back into the sport, basically. Um, and so I went back to the UK, um, finished my third year at Kingston. So I'd done a year in Kansas City. And then I knew I really wanted to work in sport. And um, and, I, and I'd started running again, like uh, training, like basically full-time while studying as well um and I, I had a year in um i moved to spain for a year so i'd done some coaching over the summer after i finished graduated at kingston and um just coaching at the local athletics club like young athletes under 13s under 15s um did some summer scheme kind of i worked for like uk athletics doing a program called star track which is literally getting eight to 14 year olds you know, parents who want to get rid of their kids for a week. It was like one of those camps, you know, mayhem. Um, and they learn they learn athletics through the week. So they cover every event in athletics through the week. It was a really good program. You know, the value for money was amazing. If you're a parent and you spend, you know, I think it was like maybe 60, 70 quid for the week from nine till three every day. I mean, that's amazing childcare, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and they're out. Yeah. Um, so and so there's me trying to teach like 50 kids that are <laughs> 8 to 14 some of them are crying <laughs> um but you know, it was good it, it taught me a lot and um my coach at the time he he told me uh, he was like if you really want to be a coach one day um this this will be the best training you'll ever have because if you can manage you know 40 50 8 to 14 year olds and get them to just do what you want them to do. They don't even have to do it well. But if you can just organize them, you'll be a really good coach one day. And um, he was so right. Because <laughs> that was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, 
and I had to do one a week for about six, seven weeks over that summer. And I was exhausted at the end of that seven weeks. I was, oh. Um, So anyway, that got me back into, that got me back on the theme of coaching and athletics particularly. And I went to, and ended up moving to Spain for a year to go and train full time um, and uh, experience different culture and learn a little bit about coaching. We had athletes come out to Spain to do warm weather training and a bit of high altitude training in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, so in Granada, there's a, a training camp high in the mountain in Sierra Nevada that you can train at for altitude. So we had athletes come out mainly from the UK and they rented a villa that was on our complex where we lived. And we would literally take them, just take them out for runs, take them training, almost like a training holiday, um, take them to the track in Granada or Malaga. Um, sometimes there were races, local races they could do. Um, so it was a good experience. I mean, no, no stress, no pressure, didn't make any money. It was mainly to pay for our keep, essentially. But it was three of us that went out there and um, just trained for a year, came back. And it got me in good enough shape to get a scholarship to go back to the States. So I had to do my master's. And that's when I went to Colorado. Um, so I moved to Colorado in 2006 in the January and started my master's degree again, sports science related. Um, and uh, it was um, that was huge for me. So I got to run and train at altitude, you know, full time. And I was on the team there on scholarship, um, ran for about a year and a half on the on the college team. And then about a year into my stay there, they f- actually fired my coach. So <laughs> the guy who brought me out got fired. And so we didn't have a coach. And uh, I was kind of helping a few of the guys on the team with their training, um, just organically, not getting paid, just um, just because we didn't have a coach. So I, I kind of stepped up and helped a few of the guys out. And then um, a new coach was hired, came in that summer of 07. Mm-hmm. And um, he he basically got in contact with me, gave me a phone call and said, look, I heard you've been, you have a coaching background, you're a qualified coach, you know, back in the UK, um, you've done all your coaching like licenses. Um, would you be interested in coming on the staff as a graduate assistant coach? So kind of like a bit like an intern, really, um, but yeah. you get paid. So essentially he was going to pay my tuition, which was a lot of money, you know, because it was a international student fees. And so I had to think about it and I was like, well, I'd have to forego my last semester of eligibility to compete as an athlete. Um, but this is a good chance to get into coaching, you know, a p- paid coaching at least. So I took it. So that was me. So that's how I got into like full time professional coaching. Um, so I started in basically the August of 07 um, there in Colorado We're on the on the team. So I went from being an athlete on the team to a coach on the team, you know, overnight, essentially. So that was hard because, you know, guys who were my friends, I was now having to, you know, bollock them basically for turning up late. <laughs> um so that that's difficult you know yeah i bet i bet and, and was there any sort of heads that were batted with in those early days of the relationship or did i think um i think overall there weren't there weren't many um issues in terms of challenging that authority because i think they because i was a, already a master student so a lot of the kids on the team were undergraduates so i was a little bit older anyway a little mm-hmm. bit more 
um, removed from like the younger guys on the team, as it were. Um, and so, so I ha already had that kind of relationship with most of the team. Um, but I was brutal, like a lot more brutal than I am now. I didn't have much patience back then. So I think the first semester, I, I think we cut about 20 kids. We kicked them off the team just because I was like, you're not working hard enough. And I, I know what you get up to. <laughs> and yeah. um, so you're not going to make it. So I'm, I'm taking your scholarship away, you know, which was that was hard. Because it's always hard to tell a kid, you know, like they're not going to have a scholarship because that makes it hard for them to pay for their tuition. Is that budget related? Like for your coaching staff, how many kid, like guys you can have on your team? We we were limited in terms of um, we didn't really have a limit in terms of the number of people we could have. We were limited by our capacity as coaches. So at that time, we there was only uh, Mark, who was our head coach, and myself, who was essentially you know, a part-time work, although I was working more than full-time hours, only getting paid, you know, mm. a stipend. So it was like eight, $9,000 for the, for the year. Um, so between us, we, we had at early stages, we probably had like 40 athletes um, to manage, but Mark took, uh, Mark was an endurance coach. Um, but I, I coached all the track side of things. So I coached all the sprints, the jumps, the throws, the combined events. And we didn't have many in each area. Probably, I probably had 20, 22 athletes total across all those event areas. So not many in each event group and mainly sprinters and some jumpers. We didn't have many throwers at all. Um, mm. So it was quite a different experience, but I really enjoyed coaching the sprints and the power athletes. Although I'm an endurance coach now, that was my starting point. Um, and um, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Um, so that's how I started. And it was only about, it was probably a year and a half later, my, uh, one of my best friends from the UK, actually, he did the same as me. He went out to the States to run. He ran in North Carolina. And he ended up moving to Colorado with his wife, who was an American. And he asked me if I would help her with training. And she was a distance runner. Um and she'd been she'd done pretty well in college but hadn't you know really done anything above that kind of level like good collegiate level in america so i said yes i started helping her out um she did made some really good improvements and then after about uh 18 months she made the us team in the 10,000 so we moved her up in distance and that that was a real good experience of like going through kind of a long process with a, a distance runner and taking them from that level of very good athlete to an international athlete. Um, and uh, when I went through that, I had other athletes approach me and say, would you help me as well? So I had a couple of marathon runners um, that I worked with and that was really good and started to develop a bit of a reputation. Um, so I was coaching sprinters, um, you know, with the college and I was coaching these elite distance women as well so it was quite a different combination um and um and then because of that um mark who was the guy who hired me uh, you know i owe a lot to him because he he realized you know i was doing quite well with these distance uh, female distance athletes and he basically said look our women's cross-country team have been struggling you know the men have been doing really well um but for whatever reason i just can't recruit you know top women and i uh, can't get them to run at the same level as guys and would you be interested in becoming the head women's coach um 
And so I thought about it and I, and, you know, I really enjoyed coaching the sprints, particularly I had male sprint, a lot of good male sprinters. And um, I, I said, yeah, I'll take it. So I took it. It was a good promotion for me, moved into being a head coach and increasing salary. Um, so it opened up a few more doors. And so I started coaching um, the, the women's team and was the head women's coach. And I had at this point now, I now had an assistant coach and an intern as well. So um in the space of like three years in, it progressed really quick you know um so that was exciting things moved along although at the time it seemed slow looking back now it was big improvements in three years three four years to go from a, a, basically an intern to a head coach um I was, and at the time i think i was the youngest head coach in the nca so across the whole of the united states in the college system in division well at least in my division i was the youngest head coach so and when I took over, our women's team were ranked, I think, 13th in the region. So nationally, probably maybe top 40 in the region, uh, national um, rankings, but top 13 in the region. And in order to make it to the NCA championships, the national championships, that's what every team wants to do. Um, you have to be top, uh, top three in your region, um, essentially. So well, they were a long, long way away from making to the national level um and so when i got hired the athletic director said to me what's the goal you know what's your five-year plan and i said well within five years we want to be you know definitely top 10 in the country is what we want to be in five years and i want to get to the national championships within three years ideally and uh at the end of the first year we made it to nationals we were third in the region and uh, we finished top 10 in the country <laughs> so that was it. so you you obviously ready for success with with what you do you know your friend's wife going from a college level to uh you know national level give give people like a bit of a flavor you know what's your secret sauce what's your magic recipe and i'll get it all differ athlete to athlete and and discipline to discipline but you know, what, what do you sort of really look at and, and drill into and, and what improvements do you make with, the, with your athletes? I think my my philosophies on training are, are just a little different from your normal endurance based athletics coach that you would find down your local club. And I think that comes from working with other athletes, working with sprinters and jumpers and footballers and um, athletes, rugby players I've worked with as well, where you're thinking of the whole person and an athlete rather than an endurance a slow jogger you're thinking of an athlete and that's how i think of as uh, who, whoever i work with can i make them stronger faster you know more athletic you know and that could be it, whether it's in the gym or whether it's pure speed or whether it's jumping ability or whatever it is can i just make them a better athlete all round? and i think that facilitates longer term it makes um the performance gains bigger you know because if you put in the groundwork and you really um put in good foundations so if you work on like things like mechanics like technique spend time doing that spend time underpinning what speed characteristics are you know it, with the person no matter who they are so if they have no speed you know they're a one gear sally well they can still improve you know they can still be stronger they can still be more explosive relative to themselves you know 
So I think mm -hmm. if you start with those things and underpin and set the foundation, then when you start to layer it with work and volume and increased training, those things can then come out. You can draw them out easier. But I think a lot of endurance coaches forget basic principles of, of strength and power and development in those areas. And so when they go to, you know, the, the average endurance coach will think we'll give them lots of volume, then we'll take the volume away and they should feel really good and they'll run fast. Well, if you've never taught someone to run fast in the first place, how are they going to do it? You know, mm -hmm. so I think it's a different mindset of thinking sprints coaches call it short to long. So it's thinking starting with the speed and the power and then building volume around that. Right. And I think endurance running or endurance training is a combination of the two. It's long to short. So your traditional build up loads of miles and then take it away and go faster. So that's long to short. And then sprints world is normally short to long. So start with quality and take that volume out. You know, so whether you do that with increasing the number of races or whether you do that with lengthening reps over time. So it's a combination of the two things. And when you bring them together, then you get a middle distance training, you know, so you've got, you, you're working on the endurance part on this side, but the sprints, don't forget about that and the power on that side relative to that individual. And mm -hmm. then the training in the middle is their, you know, the meat and gravy, really. It's that's yeah. the, the, what they want to do. So don't forget about the two ends. So like the marathon runners I had, I made them do 30 meter sprints, you know, in the early season. They hated it because they weren't good at it, um, but it was good for them because it exposed them to use and activate different muscles they don't normally use, you know, when they're running, you know, 20, 30 mile long run. Um, and so it gives them extra capacity when they need it. So I think that's part of why I've been successful is I think about the person as an athlete overall, not just an endurance athlete, a marathon runner or a sprinter or a footballer or whatever it is, try and make them a better athlete all round. And those qualities will help the other areas. Yeah, it, it makes sense to me coming from like, a, to me, intensity is king. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not perfect, but some days, well, not some days, for quite some time, I'd done my long, slow workouts too fast and I'd done my short, fast workouts too slow. Yeah. And it's definitely an art and a skill to be able to get yourself up for horrible intervals that you know are going to hurt and you know are going to be painful. Um, and I guess, you know, to some, to some respects, that's why you have a coach someone to give you that plan so you don't have to think about it and for someone to push you on days where you might not be feeling it or you know you're feeling a little tired or stressed out or whatever it might be and you know you you hold your athletes accountable um have you ever been in a scenario where you know an athlete's not sort of playing ball with you or you've had to pull them to one side and, and say you know like pull up your socks you're slacking a bit here or how, how do you sort of manage manage that type of uh yeah, no, I've had, uh, especially in the college system, there's lots. I mean, the the athletes I work with now, you know, they're very highly motivated. So it's um, that shouldn't ever be an issue um, really for them. There, there are days, obviously, they're human beings, so they're not robots. Um, so there's days when they are not there mentally, maybe, um, or they might not be there physically. They might not just have recovered in time. But um, generally, it's it's not because they're not motivated. 
Um, but yeah, there's lots of athletes I've had to call into the office. I've had I've had conversations where people are crying when they leave my office. You know, um, it, it, in my current role and previous roles. <laughs> um, so those are never fun. Um, and I, and I normally, you know, the first conversation I normally have with an athlete that I take on is to say look, we're going to have a few tears and we're going to have a lot of laughs through the years but don't think there's you know there's going to be both there, there will be tears mm. <laughs> um so there there's always hard moments you know when you when you're working with people that um you know they're invested in their dreams essentially um there's going to be hard moments when you challenge them and you and you're challenging people's psyche and their, their their being as a person you know like you said there's times when you don't feel like doing stuff and you're, you're pushing them you know um emotionally to the limit sometimes you know not necessarily physically but emotionally and those are the hardest days when when people are on the edge um either psychologically or physically and they just need to get something done you know and those are the hardest days to manage the, the days when everyone's feeling good those are easy, you know, um, so uh, but you don't get many of those because if you're training right, you should be tired most of the time. So that's the hardest part, really, yeah. of my job is is kind of using that that instinct, that gut feeling of knowing where an athlete's at at any one time. And I think that takes a few years with any athlete you work with to develop it. it you don't you know, like if I took on a new athlete, it takes me months to figure out you know, just their mannerisms and how they react to certain things and how they recover. And the the longer you spend with them, obviously, you, you become more attuned to the little signs. Um, like, for instance, I was I was with an athlete uh, last week she, and she's had an injury and she's coming back and she's doing really well. Um, but she's at that stage in when you've we've all been there and been ill or had an injury. And, you know, the first week or two back, you you feel quite motivated don't you when you get going again and and you you really attack everything you do because you've got capacity because you haven't been training you might have had a break and then there's that bit where like maybe it's the third week maybe it's the fourth where you kind of hit a wall physically and everything catches up and the motivation might not be there you might be a little tired you might have had a long day at work or whatever it is and um and you kind of that's the that's the biting point. That's the red where you're redlining a little. And that's where she was um, at the end of last week. She, she was training really well, building up again. But the combination of different things that she was doing was taking her capacity away. And when she was warming up, she went she was really quiet. You know, she weren't talking much. And uh, the conversation was a little bit more um, being frustrated with the news or you know, co coronavirus or um, other other people around, like annoying her or whatever. It wasn't necessarily positive chat, mm. or it wasn't. And, and I could just yeah. instinctively, I just picked up that she's tired. You know, and I was in the back of my head, I was thinking, not sure how this sessions, this training session is going to go today because we planned something quite like you were saying, like you know, on the shorter end, it's important to get that intensity so it was going to be short reps but quick you know intense to to drive the next phase of the training um so i was like kind of a bit apprehensive of how it was going to go and so i decided to change the session slightly and start the reps a little easier to build her in get her confidence up and then start mm -hmm. attacking them a little bit harder um towards the back end once she's fully warmed up and you know really rolling a bit and uh so that's what we yeah. did 
and I changed the start of the the, uh, the session as well and put in a little bit of a, a tempo run just to make because it was cold and it was raining last week was miserable here so the tempo run just elevated everything got the heart rate up for a little bit longer at a higher level just got to move in a bit where, where it was cold just doing a normal jog warm-up and drills and strides wasn't quite enough it, it was my gut feeling so I changed the session there mm. and then on the spot um and and then we went into the short reps after that and that worked because we eventually got down to running a lot quicker on the last few reps than I even planned and afterwards she was you know she was buzzing because it's been a while since she's done something like that because of the injury and I said to her like afterwards once we finished I said I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go today <laughs> you were a bit quiet in the warm-up and she said yeah I'm, I'm tired like I didn't sleep well last night and um I was a little worried about the session and I'm just the training's catching up with me I'm in that like third fourth week and I said yeah I know I realized you know but I said you did really well today to to overcome that and get through it and get what we needed to get done but tomorrow I, I think I gave a, a non-running day but like a, a, a session on the bike so cr a cross training session to get some kind of aerobic hit but not you know weight bearing but I said you know what you did you, yeah. you're at that point where you're starting to get a bit tired you know the signs are there just take tomorrow off just have a rest day tomorrow you know uh, and we'll get back on it on sunday and sunday she had a really good run um and so that was the right decision and that's that's the difference i think between good coaches and coaches that are not quite as successful is having that gut feeling and trusting it and making decisions yeah. off the back of those gut feelings um and that you can't learn that in a in a textbook you know it's just experience and years of working with a variety of athletes i think the more the different types of people and the different types of athlete you work with you you pick up that skill quicker and better you know so um so that's a that's an example really i was going to compliment you on that actually but you beat me to the punch because you know some people are so robotic uh with their program yeah. you know you do this you must follow this and i was that way um, as well yeah that that set week and like you say you, you go off of gut because obviously you you've got that relationship that harmony you can tell if someone's slightly off but do you track specific measurements like with any of your athletes do you track heart rate variability do you track sleep do you track body weight you know how, how much sort of detail do you go in it with the guys yeah, I mean, you can. Um, I, I've been I've done it all different ways. And like you said, so I used to be a coach that was very, you know, loved an Excel sheet, you know, like, you know, like I'd send out training and um, everything would be planned. And I didn't like it when it didn't deviate from when it deviated from the plan. But you realize that, you, you know, I said it before, you're working with humans and they're not robots and they're um, they're not they're. I think Steve Jobs said it really well is, um, you know, like it you forget the, the there's an artist in there as well um it's you know like the people that you work with whether it's in business technology whether it's um athletes it, there's a part of the the human psyche that's an artist as well and that, and that's certainly yeah they might be just a runner but they're also an artist they're also a person so you have to consider that and i think i've learned that more as i've become more experienced over the years um and reading people is a huge skill that is you know i think underappreciated and there are a lot of coaches that 
you know people say you're either a, a science based or you're an art like an you use the art of coaching or the science of coaching and the best coaches have a combination right they, they use science and that's that's going back to your question yeah i use those things so we do monitor you know garmin watches um garmin or polar or whatever you got you know they like i can scroll through on mine and it's measuring you know your heart resting heart rate um you know the weekly heart rate your sleep overnight you know your training load all those things steps you know my um so we look at all those we, we monitor heart rate during sessions and that's all great information for me um but i think the more experienced you get you learn to filter out those metrics and you use them when you need them and not necessarily solely rely on them they're a tool they're a great tool but you shouldn't use them as your you know that's that's what you're going to go off of you know don't make decisions just off data go off the feel because sometimes you have to ignore what the watch says and do more do go harder you know just because your watch says you need to recover actually you might not you know that's not the best of you but there are other times as well when you you know your watch is telling you to do more and mentally you need a break you know so um and that goes for people you know in everyday life as well as athletes like the watch can't tell you you've had a bad day at work you know the heart rate variability may tell you you've had a stressful day so yeah that that's a good sign but it doesn't tell you you know your you know your grandma's in hospital and she's been struggling you know and that's on your mind it doesn't tell you you've had an argument with your wife um doesn't yeah. tell you your kid's been screaming at you for two hours since you got in <laughs> um, so so those things you have to consider and i think the you know the best the best people in sport the best um, practitioners the best coaches the best um you know sports scientists they understand the human part as well and i think that's the big that's the big that's the game changer i think is that you know you see it in the premier league right the best managers you know they know when to put an arm around someone and they know when to throw a football boot at them. <laughs> i think ferguson had that, yeah didn't he? Alex absolutely. Ferguson had that to an art and you know to some respects now when you look at the the top managers in the premier league probably you know pep guardiola uh jose you know they've got this and it is a skill and it, and it is an art um but and this is one of the questions i was going to come on to you know how obviously the pe the guys that you work with the athletes that you work with um you know must show a level of talent to be able to get yeah. to where they are but how much of it do you think is, is mental for the guys you know how much can they beat themselves before that you know the starting gun or the start of the race goes off and you know do you have any do, do you deal with the mental side of the game or, or is there separate sort of sports psychologist coaches for that i mean we we for sure have sports psychologists yeah that we work with and that are a part of our program but the coaches the coach's job especially at the, the higher the level you go it becomes more and more about managing an athlete rather than the the x's and o's of training you know it, it really is like you said the Mourinho's, the clops you know it's getting inside the players heads or the athletes heads um so yeah we we are defined as coaches but you could put a little asterisk and say psychologist, uh, you know, support worker, care worker, counsellor, teacher. You know, it's um, most of this year because of 2020 has <laughs> been so crap. Most of my year has been that. <laughs> um, 
you know, um, I've had I've had probably more tears this year than ever before um, with my athletes. Uh, so um, it's been difficult, but that's part of it. That's when you know, um, and it's a huge part of it. You like like you said, I've I've had uh, I've had an athlete the week of a, a big race, like I mean, like a Diamond League, like London Diamond League, like that's the biggest event in the athletics calendar you know the biggest grand prix event sixty thousand people anniversary games and that week you know on the tuesday i had a female athlete who couldn't she could barely run a mile in four minutes 50 in a mile race um that was supposed to be a tune-up you know and that like to you know most people four minutes 50 for a mile is quite quick but mm-hmm. for her that was not quick at all you know and she was cr- like had a bit of a mental lapse and she was like i don't know she was supposed to run the 5000 that weekend um in the in the london diamond league and this was the first time she was going to run a 5000 ever you know so she had she was just like i don't know how i'm going to do this on the weekend you know and i was at that point i didn't know how she was going to do it either <laughs> um but we got her back on track we changed a few things we had a few chats and that weekend, she ran a world qualifying standard for the world championships in the 5,000, the first ever 5K. I mean, amazing performance in front of, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people. Um, what amazing pressure on her after, you know, Tuesday running so slow in a race and being really down. Um, so things can change quick. You know, um, that same meet, I had, um, I had an athlete that I work with still, and she told me the, the morning of the, the Sunday on the Diamond League in London that she wasn't going to race. She didn't feel good. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, you've been, you've been, you've already been paid. You've been paid to race. You've got appearance fee. You know, you've got your agents here. Like, he's expecting to race because he wants his 20%. Mm. Um, you know, like, this is what we've been training for, you know. And she just was just not there. You know, whatever it was, she was just like, I, I can't race today um and i basically told her get her ass down there <laughs> from the hotel and she did and she ended up winning she won wow. the D- london diamond league you know like and uh amazing she's probably won you know what maybe two three diamond leagues in her career you know a long mm-hmm. career so it was a huge day but she you know that morning she weren't going to race so you think the pressure of, of that event that was too much I don't think it was necessarily just that event. There was a number of things. She was, um, uh, like many people, you know, over this in England, summer months, you get people have hay fever and she, she'd been struggling a bit with uh, asthma slash hay fever and mm-hmm. was just couldn't breathe very well. And so she was anxious. Uh, there was an anxiety about the breathing, yeah. um, which, you know, is only exacerbated when you're thinking about it all the time, you know? Sure, yeah. And so I think that was a major part of it. Um, you know she'd just come back from uh like kind of a bad year the year before and so you know still building confidence um mm-hmm. and it actually i think just taking the pressure out and giving her three you know cue points before she went into that race just real simple ones um really just focused ahead and she just stuck to those points and executed them you know really really well on the day um and that's that's what performers do you know, like that's why they're there and, you know, us mortals aren't there on the track. You know, uh, I couldn't do it. I wasn't that kind of athlete. You know, you know, I I ran, I thought I ran to the, 
a good level when I was an athlete, the best of my ability. But when I look back now, I'm like, ah, I could have run better, you know. Um, but these guys, they're, they're there for a reason. They're performers as well. Um, and they, they get as nervous as anyone else, you know, like so, you know, whether it's Mo Farrell or, or you know, who, Paula Radcliffe or whatever, they still get nervous. Um, but it's how they deal with it and how they process and refocus and then deliver a performance. It's just like an actor, you know, rehearsing a play for months and months and then you step out in the palladium. And you have to deliver in front of all those people. And you're looking up at the balcony and you're going, oh, my God, how do I get here? Um, so they are performers as well. We forget that. You know, that's a big skill to have. Um, and and have, not everyone has it. Do you have certain protocols with your guys? I get, you know, they're probably all unique individuals. Some people are, you know, might have their hood up with music on, their headphones playing. Some people want, you know, constant chat, feedback um do you have sort of pre-race routines with the guys obviously you you warm them up and stuff but you know what's what's your sort of thoughts on yeah that? yeah it's very the, the i think the warm-up area is probably from a psychological point of view is one of the most fascinating places on the planet <laughs> i wish i could give you know the you know the the uh you know the average day on the street that's really like that's really interested in sport, really interested in fitness, um, especially running and, you know, athletics in competition. If they could get an insight into what it's really like in the warm area, it's absolutely fascinating, you know, because there's people crying, there's people ecstatic that have just come out of the arena, maybe just finished competing. They've had a really good, you know, performance. There's agents walking around doing deals, you know, with like other meat promoters um, with athletes, with coaches. There's coaches trying to recruit athletes. Um, there's coaches trying to manipulate athletes in a negative way to help their athletes. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's uh, medical staff and physios um, interfering sometimes with what you're doing. So they might be clouding an athlete's judgment by treating them and, oh, your hamstring's a little tight, you know, like they don't need to know that. <laughs> like, just, um so it's a fascinating place, the warm-up area, and um, it's um, a lot can happen and change in that that kind of hour before a, a competition, before a race, because it can either get a lot better or it can go a lot worse. Um, mm. And sometimes you just don't know. Like um, I've been in a warm-up area, and you see athletes warming up, and you say that guy is going to run well today; just looks amazing, you know. Mm. And then they run terrible, um, and vice versa. Of you know, seen athletes that look, you know, I'm like, geez, they look terrible. And then they go out there and kill it. Um, so, so, yeah, you really don't know looking at other people. But if you know your own athletes, you have your own set protocols. And I think the good the good teams talk about it, you know, beforehand. Like you learn you learn a little bit on the job and you have to make adjustments for each time you go into that environment. But um, I, I generally have definitely have had conversations with my athletes beforehand and said look when we get in there what would you like you know do you want me some athletes want you standing right there dictating their warm-up telling them what to do they don't want to think they just want to be told what to do other athletes just want it like you said hood up headphones just want to zone out they know what they're doing they don't need mm -hmm. you there um but they might like you there just just to know that you're there you know so you don't yeah. have to say anything um so it's knowing 
knowing what you need to do for each individual. And at the same time, the bigger the competition, you have to manage your own energy. So you might be, you know, when you're at a world champs, it's opening night, you know, um, you know, you're excited, you know, you're fired up. Um, and so you have to manage your own emotional energy and uh, emotions because you don't want that to spill over to the athletes. You don't want to get them too pumped up or you don't want to get them down or, you know, you don't mm. want to affect their, their psyche. So that part of it's really hard. That's really hard to manage, especially when you're in an a championship environment. So you might have been there, you know, 10 days, like from early in the morning to late at night, multiple days. So you might get to the last day of competition and be absolutely exhausted. And suddenly you got, you're working with an athlete and you've got to get them fired up. You know, you've got to fire yourself up. Um, so there's definitely been times. You know, I remember in Rio at the Olympics, uh, myself and another coach, John Big, we were sitting in the like kind of it's not a hospitality it's like a little porter cabin with some vending machines in it it's not glamorous um and it had they gave it was like three bottles of coke you know and uh, we were just down in coke to try and get some caffeine and sugar and get buzz going because we were just exhausted you know we were yeah. just kind of at the limits of you know uh, we've just been away from home for three four weeks and working long days and so we were just down in coke and eating like gummy bears and you know haribo just to get a sugar fix to get like high almost before um before um helping the athletes in the warm-up area so yeah it's a huge part of it i always um sort of going back to the warm-up area a bit but i always recall dean Asher smith saying that um i listened to a, an interview with her and she was like the, the mental game at, at the start of a race you said um you know there'll be people warming up and crossing into a lane yeah uh, there'll be you know everyone's trying to put everyone off their stride and and you know it's almost like that uh, obviously not with the females but the, like the alpha dog sort of pumping out their chest this is my race you know trying to sort of set the tone yeah um, and she said like I, I just have the mentality that if that's all they've got to try and put me off then that's fine like let let them do what they need to do because i know deep down i've put the hard work in and when i'm in my blocks and i'm looking forward none of that bravado stuff matters you know it's it's me against that gun and i'm going to do everything i can to make sure i get to the finish line now when you when you said about um going to a place like rio you know how how early do you go out for like pre pre games because we talk about environment um you know habit setting environment you you want to give someone the best uh, opportunity to be able to perform and you know that comes with you know uh, obviously getting mastering the basics you know adequate sleep water good food you know how does all that sort of stuff change when you're used to training um say at Loughborough for example or at home in the UK to then go into Brazil different time zones different food you know how do you prepare for uh, you know almost like the pinnacle of someone's career but taking them out of the UK and dropping them in a different world yeah that's it's very difficult and that that's um I think you'll see with you see with a lot of younger athletes that make their first championships or their first international selection appearance they don't always do that well um, and it's not because they weren't trained well. You know, it's not because their coaches did a bad job. It's normally because of the things you just said. So 
uh, being away in a random country, eating random food. Maybe they didn't sleep well because the beds are different. You know, um, they're just not used to the environment um, and they're not used to maybe training or racing at different times because just because, you know, in the UK we train at a certain time doesn't mean that in other countries they do the same. So the access to facilities might be different and that can throw you off massive. And I think the more the more champs you go on, the better you adjust and you make adjustments to it. You figure out little little cheats or little wins, you know, and Team Sky talked about marginal gains. And they, you know, one of the first things they did was get everyone a, a, their own individual pillow to take with them. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it seems seems really simple, but that's it's a marginal gain because it's just a, you're trying to stabilize your environment as much as possible to what you're used to um and i've always done that like i've traveled a lot and i've always took my pillow with me because it's the one thing like i can deal with like a firm bed or soft bed or whatever but i need a pillow that i like and i and i like a really crappy old pillow that's beat up uh, i'm quite <laughs> weird so you might get to a nice like so for me sometimes sleeping in a nice hotel with brand new puffy pillows is miserable because i don't like the pillow you know <laughs> so i take my own pillow everywhere yeah um so, so things, yeah so things like that are huge you know and i think as you as you become more seasoned experienced as an athlete and a coach you pick those things up and you pick it up from other athletes so it might be that first trip you run horrible or you compete you jump horrible because you you know it's too different but then you talk to other athletes on the team and you say oh i didn't sleep well i didn't like the pillow and they might say, why don't you get your own pillow and bring, take it with you? You know, or like I have an athlete who, um, you know, she's she's quite sensitive in terms of the food she wants to eat, you know, the day of a race or the day days before because she gets nervous. But she knows that could affect her stomach and what she can eat. So she just brings her own food with her, you know. Mm -hmm. So whether they're serving the best food in the world in the hotel or it is terrible, she's going to have the same meal she's always had and she's going to keep on that plan so yeah. you know like a lot of um some of the our management made fun of her one trip because she turned up with a bag of just food you know and so she had a, a team kit but another suitcase just full of food um but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's pre she's prepared you know um yeah. and um you know she she put things in there that are like simple that she knows she can uh, have access to like Things like I know it might say simple, but like porridge pots, you know, so she put porridge pots in there. So she knows, right, I, I get used to in the after most races are like big races are in the evening. So you sometimes have qualifying rounds in the morning, but the finals are in the evening and you eat lunch, but you don't really feel like eating much because you, your training's really reduced in that period. So you're not that hungry. Um, so you want to eat something like in the afternoon, but you don't want a meal. So porridge is a great. You know way of getting something in that's fulfilling you put some fruit with it or nuts or whatever you want and you can always get access to hot water you know so it's a really easy way and she doesn't need a bowl because it's in a pot so she can take it with her um so little working out little little wins or little marginal gains like that are really important through the career and so like for me it's pillow number one number two is like having um things like the porridge pots or snacks readily readily available snacks to take with me all the time because i will get hungry and when i get hungry i'll get hangry <laughs> so um 
having a snack in my bag at all times is important. Um, So that's a little win for me. Um, I guess, um, you know, just figuring out like things like that, like having having um, uh, ear plugs, you know, because you might be roomed with someone that snores, you know, like a train. Yeah, that's (laughs) horrible. I've been there and that actually in the holding camp before we got to Rio was in Bel- a place called Belo Horizonte. And um, in Belo, I was rooming with um, another coach and uh, his name is Rob Denmark. <laughs> I'll throw him under the bus. And he was <laughs> snoring horrible, like horrible. Like it was so bad. I had my earplugs in and then like <laughs> my like noise cancelling headphones over the top. And I could still hear him. So I, I went down into literally into the lobby of the the place we were staying at and slept on the sofa in the lobby because it was that bad. Um, and then they got me my own room, like a, an athlete left to go into Rio. And so a room became available and I managed to get my own room. Like there's that rarely happens. We don't, as staff, we don't really get our own rooms. We have to share. Um, but I got my own room after about a week. And that was like heaven because I could actually sleep then. So that is a big, that's a big one for me is, is choosing your roommate or getting to a choice over your roommate. I can handle the food and everything else I can deal with is if I have someone snoring that stops me sleeping, that's not good. Mm. Sleep is king, right? Sleep is king. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you touched on it there slightly with, with the food and the athlete. Do you have much involvement with the nutrition of your athletes or is that controlled by a separate team? We, we have, again, like the psychology part, we, we do have practitioners like nutritionists that we work with. Um, and it's, it's on a case by case scenario. So it, the, for me personally, we, we only use in our group, we only use nutritionist if it's for a particular strategy. So if there's a challenge with where we're going normally, so like for um, Doha, it was the heat and uh, and uh, for Tokyo, it will be the humidity, how you deal with that, how we recover, how we feel, how we hydrate, um, altitude, how we again, all those factors. Um, So normally, if we're going somewhere that's a different environment, we'll use the nutritionist to come up with a strategy around that athlete with for me personally i'm quite fortunate that the athletes i work with their their basic nutrition or education is is pretty good so they don't i wouldn't i wouldn't prescribe or tell them how to eat or or ask a nutritionist to work with them because they they a they're more experienced they're older athletes uh, and two they have a pretty good diet you know like i've been around them enough over the last few years where um they eat really well, but they're also not, they're not, they're not crazy about, you know, they don't weigh their cornflakes. They're, they, you know, they can relax as well. Like, and sometimes they can go and eat a steak, you know, like they're very balanced, which is very unique in endurance. There's, you know, like endurance definitely um, ties itself to the people that are very um, regimented with food uh, and nutrition. Um, and, um, you don't always get athletes that are very balanced and can eat, you know, you know, a variety of food and be happy, you know, having 
you know regular meals as or have the occasional you know splurge or ice cream or whatever like you get a lot of athletes in endurance that tend to be very strict with their diets um so my athletes are, are fairly well balanced so i'm quite lucky in that regard um but I've, I've had athletes that struggled with nutrition so we've had to get a nutritionist to help them you know and that can be through you know emotionally and psycho you know psychologically they've struggled yeah. with food um, and not necessarily, um, you know, a problem eating food, but like disordered eating, you know, and you see that a lot more is the connotation is it's female athletes, but you see it a lot more with male athletes these days, especially in sports where um, physique is a part of it, you know, like bodybuilding, body fitness or, or fitness challenges. Um, you see it a lot with those sports now in, in males more than females. Um, so it is an issue. But like I said, thankfully, my athletes um, are pretty balanced when it comes to nutrition, yeah. How about complementation? You know, do any of you guys sort of take, uh, say, creatine for recovery or any any sort of, um, you know, supplementation that you guys use? So we, we're part of um, any supplement we take has to be batch tested and, and approved and a clear, a clear for um, where it was produced and how it was produced and whatever. So... It's very strict rules around UK anti-doping about you, you listing. So each athlete, that once they get to a certain level, they have an app on their phone that essentially they monitor anything that they put in their system that's um, not just regular food, you know, and drink. So um, any anything that came in a bottle or a supplement, they'll have to um, register. They'll have to make sure it's they know they know exactly when they say batch tested it, it literally means that they know exactly where that batch came from so it couldn't be contaminated with anything um so it's very well regulated um and and monitored um and they do take like the, for recovery especially so you can get like um i mean most people have seen like recovery shakes um so the endurance guys when they go to altitude you know they might, we sometimes might have to drive 30, 40 minutes to get to a trail or a road that we're going to use. And so um, it's, it's an easy way of getting fuel back in and recovery back in while they're sitting in that car. So they might take a snack, you know, a banana, um, a, a, you know, a sports bar or a cereal bar, and then have a recovery shake. So it might be um, for those that um, are fine with milk, they might have milk. It might be milk based. So powdered, you know, like a flavored powder that has like a high level, like protein, carbohydrate mix, um, maybe with some nutrients as well. Um, but very generalized, you know, it, something anyone can buy. And they'll use that to help like get some immediate fuel in that that little window that's, you know, immediately after exercise for the first, say, 20 minutes. They, it's really important to get an initial um, intake of fuel and then that allows you to you know get, it basically buys you uh, more time to get that first meal in after a session so it's really important for endurance well any athlete but for, for endurance when they're training two three times a day um, that can be really important because the amount of times you get to actually refuel are limited if you're training you know that many times so um, that time yeah things like powders recovery drinks really important sports drinks because then they can have that get back then they might go to the gym then it might be do do some key lifts or they might have a, a set gym program rehab program and then they might be able to eat you know so it might be 
two two and a half three hours until they ate a really good meal so it's really important to fuel in between um so most of the endurance athletes will supplement with recovery products not necessarily like um performance products and it the only other time they would use supplements is really um if they had a deficiency you know in the in the blood work so you know something might have been highlighted like vitamin d you know um is low which in the uk that's not impossible because <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so vitamin d could be low iron again with endurance like um you know so, uh, some athletes have a low iron so they might have to take an iron supplement um so so most of the endurance athletes it's basic supplementation it's not anything you know crazy in the uk anyway like other countries they might be you know blurring the lines but um for us it, we try not to supplement really at all we try and get as much out of the balanced diet as we can start with that um and if we can't if we can't kind of get anything else in because of environmental factors like i said like we're out in a car for 40 minutes 50 minutes coming from the trail or maybe you're on an airplane um then supplements become you know a good way of getting that fuel in and um sort of something i've been experimenting really with my own personal training just to get your perspective really on it but sodium you know how much of an important part does that play in someone especially like you mentioned and the, the humidity or going from you know uk climate to say a rio climate yeah like uh, the marathon runners particularly you know will look at and longer distance athletes will look at um a high sodium drink um when they're competing and it's more important that they they'll take on that high sodium maybe tablets or um <clears throat> drinks before they compete so the hours before to get the that sodium level in the in the blood and in the body up um and then take you know a more um reduced level in their drinks with the mix of whatever they can handle and you normally every athlete's very different and what their gut can tolerate in terms of a the sodium um and potassium but b you know the sugar and absorbing that out of the drink especially for marathon runners that's important so um you know we'll do some testing in the lab uh, and look at you know what can they actually take on because anyone that's ever done you know a longer term endurance activity where you've had to take on fuel it's actually when you're running it's really hard to just physically drink um especially when you're running quick so um yeah. it's a skill that you have to practice um the skill of actually physically drinking but the skill of actually getting your body to process and absorb those nutrients out of that drink and use them is really difficult I mean, like I, I haven't, I've never ran a marathon, but I, I've done a lot of training with marathon runners. I've trained, like, done runs up to about twenty miles, and that was by far the hardest part of the run was trying to push fluid in and nutrients in to recover, like you know, fuel the system through that run. It was harder than the run, yeah. you know. Like it's, and some of the best athletes that have been through it, like there's an American uh, marathon female athlete called Dina Castor and she talked about the um you know when she first met um the nutritionist when she was training for the athens olympics where she won a bronze medal you know the the nutritionist was saying she had to take in a certain amount of uh carbohydrate in her drink and a certain amount of fluid and it was i, I can't remember how much it was maybe 
maybe 16 ounces. I can't remember what it was in American, you know, terminology. Um, but she had to take on this certain amount of fluid every, you know, so many kilometers. And she just, she, she went on the treadmill and did the test and she, she literally got two sips in, you know, the first time. And that's all she could manage uh, with each bottle. Mm. And she was just like, there's no way. Like, she's like, I don't care what the science says of what I need. I just physically cannot get that much fuel in, you know. Um, yeah. And she just worked really hard at forcing herself to take on more fluid. And she, she eventually got to somewhere. Not really, she never got to what they recommended. Um, but she got she got a lot better at it and that massively helped her in the heat of Athens. Um, so, um, it is a skill to, to try and get that fuel in and the high sodium drinks are something that's more recent, definitely. Um, and they're not, again, it's something that not every athlete can handle their gut can handle and you don't really know. And uh, until I know this sounds bad because you think, well, you'd plan and you'd have everything, but we've had athletes who've, you know, use the drinks in training, you know, use them all the time, no problems. And then they get to the event and they ha have to pull out of the race during the race because of a, a gastrointestinal issue. Um, and it's because, you know, you never know until race day, you know, your adrenaline, you know, hormones are different. You're anxious, you're under stress. And so your body's in a different place than it is normally when it's training um and and the heat and humidity maybe yeah. come in uh, as well and add to that and so it it can just tie literally tie your stomach up in knots you know um and so mm. <clears throat> it's one of those things you have to you just have it's trial and error a lot of it um and mm. um you don't want that to detract from the performance part you know so you sometimes we we are guilty of overthinking it. You know, sometimes we, we try and overplan and overthink. And I think you saw that with um, uh, Callum Hawkins was a marathon runner. Very, he's very good uh, Scottish marathon runner. And in the Commonwealth Games in, um, in uh, Gold Coast in 2018, the guy was over a minute ahead at halfway. You know, he was flying. He might have even been two minutes ahead of the rest of the field um and they planned and trained so much for the heat in australia that they were um they were getting caps and they were putting ice packs in the caps so a great idea right cool cool you down so you put every few kilometers he would grab a drink grab one of these caps put it on but what it was doing what we uh, anyway so uh, three quarters of the way into the race he collapsed so if you watch the youtube footage go back and have a look it's it's horrific the guy, like, literally, it, he's flying and then he, he starts wavering across the road and then he runs into a rail and hits his head on the rail and goes down. It's horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, and, um, you know, he's out of the race, you know, gone. And we think, you know, from talking to Callum and his coach and um, different people that what was happening was the, the cold, the ice packs were actually – interfering with his head his brain his, his head and telling him he was all right you know and he felt and making him feel like he was almost like a placebo effect like telling him he was feeling good yeah. but actually his body was overheating you know still so he wasn't backing off so he kept instead of thinking you know like not that he knew that he was that far ahead of the field but he was still worried about the them guys catching him so he kept pushing pushing mm -hmm. pushing 
and his body was overheating, but he didn't know because his head was still cold, you know, because he had the ice pack on. And so it was almost disrupting that internal regulator in the body. And so yeah. he almost overrided his system, you know, and kept plowing on. And then his body just shut down and said, no, we're done. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's that, that, yeah. that's that can happen with the sodium. You know, we can overthink. That's a great example of us overthinking something. And actually, yeah, we can use these high sodium drinks. We can use the ice packs and the ice vests and whatever else. But sometimes there's there's nothing better than actually going to the environment and just immersing yourself in in that environment and getting used to it the hard way almost slowly how does um because the the majority of people or the large majority of people listening to this are going to be your recreational um athlete you know so they take their training seriously but how does you know because the whole point of this podcast is we're, we're chasing discomfort so it's not your average joe who goes for a little tickle round the park once a month or whatever it might be you know these will be these will be your weekend warriors these will be your people that have got nine to five and family but you know they're they get out of jail they're they're um how does someone like that in, increase their 5k or their 10k or you know pb their mile time what would be your sort of real uh, basic um, or you know pro tips advice to give to these guys to, to help them sort of push on I think like when you have lots of things in your life um, it just it's just a question of what's a priority you know for, for each individual and once you've um, if it is a priority to you know maximize your performances um, relative to themselves then it's getting the most out of the time that they can set aside so whether that's like you said, whether it's half an hour every evening or if it's maybe it's three times a week, they've got, you know, two hours, you know, they can commit. So it's, it's kind of setting out, right, what 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 can I work with? what And what am I going to get the most bang for my buck, you know, using this time? So I, I'm no different from that. Like I, although I work in that environment and um, I do occasionally get to train with the athletes and whatever, I'm still able to do that. You know, I still essentially come it train in the evening or when I can and I'm trying to think what do I you know how can I make the best use of my time and I'm not I, my body's not doesn't recover as well as it used to and so I find running every day for me really hard on my body like especially my calves Achilles so I will normally do a couple of days of running and then bike a day you know so figuring out what's best for each individual and you don't you don't necessarily have to do you know that set training all the time you can mix it up you can do other things if that's going to add to your training then that's that's a good thing you know not necessarily a bad thing so you don't i wouldn't be governed by you know do i have to run this many miles you know to be good you can figure out you know if you're creative you can figure out different ways of doing it and it might be if you're taking your kid to school it might be you know having them ride their bike and you ride with them you know and then you you know you you put in an extra 10 miles on the bike in the morning before that run in the evening you know just a mm. to get the system primed and warmed up earlier in the day but to get an extra hit you know of aerobic in yeah. there so it's finding like creative ways to use your time more efficiently um and have it pl plan it don't make it don't make it too off the cuff because if you do that 
there's going to be at least once a week where you get home from work and you just can't be bothered. And if you don't have something down on a piece of paper, you are not going to do it. <laughs> or you're not going to do it as well. You know, like I think we're even the best intentioned people in the world. Um, if they've wrote it out ahead of time, even if it's just them that's writing it out, not a coach, not an, an advice or, you know, um, a personal trainer, even if they wrote it out and it's down on a piece of paper, you're more likely to do it. So I think that's a good tip is it's kind of plan out your week ahead of time, whether that's Sunday evening or over the weekend before and say, what time have I got? And be realistic. Don't say, oh, every day I'm going to run, you know, five miles. That might not be realistic. So write down what's realistic to start with and then go, right, what am I going to do during that time that I have to get the most out of that time, you know, to work towards my goal and write it down. There's, there's a lot of power in just writing something down and putting it somewhere where you're going to see it, you know, like on the fridge, yeah. you know, wherever, on the TV, wherever you in your car. And, and then you're more likely to get home and go, oh, I'm knackered, but, you know, I'll go do that. You know, because even if you just get out the door, that's still better. You know, than the, even if you have a terrible session, it's better that you got out the door and tried it, you know, than not do it at yeah. all. Because um, you didn't write it down. There's nothing on the piece of paper. It's easy to sit in that chair and watch TV. So that that's probably number one, I'd say. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say the second thing is, uh, in, like, do do stuff that you enjoy as well. Don't, don't negate... Um, you're more likely to do it if you enjoy it. So just because something's, you know, you, you're training for something, um, you know, that's difficult, don't negate the stuff that you enjoy. Like I, I like almost, um, when I get bored with training or I'm demotivated or I'm tired, I, you know, I'll just revert back to something I really enjoy because I know I'm going to get more benefit out of doing that than doing something that's really hard that I don't like and doing it really crap, you know? So you can even though you have something written down you can always swap sessions so you know wednesday you might have had planned uh right i'm going to do um a big gym session right and friday you might have down um i've got like a an easy run with some sprints scattered throughout the run and you might not like the gym session but you like the run with the sprints right and that's a lot easier the gym session's quite hard for this person so if you get to Wednesday and you're just me mentally, you're not in the game, just flip them, you know, be, you know, be creative, flip it and do the easy run, do the thing that you enjoy. And then you're going to be in a better place come that gym session, you know, and you haven't missed anything, you know, you've not missed anything. You just yeah. have to move it around. So have a plan, write something down, but also be flexible with it. Like you can move it around. It's better to have something written down and change it than not have anything written down. You know, I think that's a good thing for anything in life, but particularly training. So those things, those two things generally, I think, like do something you enjoy and have something, have a plan and have it written down are two key things without getting too specific. Um, but things you can do, I think that a whole, whole body movements that encourage you to, you're in, where your intention is to demonstrate like something movement quick are always going to be big wins. So whether that's in the gym with your Olympic lifts, so like a, you know, a, a clean or a snatch, learning how to do those movements, even if you're doing, you know, um, a hand clean, you know, or you're doing a clean off, off of blocks or you're doing part of a snatch, 
you know like you don't have to do the full movement if you're not technically there yet but the, any anything where your intention is to move quick is good because it's it's saying to your muscles we need more you know give us more yeah. so i think anything where your intention to move quick is good hill sprints doing like five second six second hill sprints on a steep hill you know maybe you roll in maybe you're doing from a standstill as well to work on that acceleration but intense effort it doesn't have to be quick like i think the biggest barrier for someone to do in sprint work out in public is they don't want to look like an idiot right in front of everyone because they might be slow it doesn't matter if you're slow it's your intention to move quick that will give you a massive training hit you know um like i'm i'm not a big guy you know i weigh about nine stone and i'll do sprints and I might look like an idiot, but it's a massive training hit for me. You know, like it's when I, if I do like seven, eight second sprint all out with like two minutes recovery and do like eight of them, I'll be sore for days because it's rare that we ever sprint flat out. Right. When do we ever sprint flat out as adults? Some some of the worst doms that I've ever had has come back from like um, I remember doing an indoor sprint session on a 60 meter track. And I, and I could not believe, like, my hip flexors, the top yeah. of my, uh, you know, like, the, the, the top of my knee, I could not believe, like, if I sneezed, it, it hurt. Like, it, yeah. it, was, it was so bad. And um, it, I, I really believe that there is so much benefit from short, sharp interval training. Um, and like you say, you don't have to run 100 metres. You could just do five, six second bursts, which to some people might be 30 meters or yeah. you know, whatever it might be. Hill sprints, the, I've moved now, but where I used to live, Church Hill, the gradient on it, it, it was an absolute bastard. And to the point that um, a lot of people used to say, I'll jog down. I used to take a super slow walk, you know, trying to get around that two, two and a half minute mark to know that I'm not going to recover much more than that. And then it was it was a mental thing for me. Once I got to the road sign, 180, boom, and I was gone. Yeah. And and you know those last 20 meters felt like I was trudging through quicksand. Yeah, absolutely. My, everything's pumping. Everything's screaming at you. Um, your brain's going stop, stop, stop. Um, and that's something that I wanted a subject that I wanted to speak to you about. You know what? Um, I know you understand the science game a hell of a lot better than me and and and, and our listeners. But you now, what is the mechanisms in the body that wants you to stop? It, everyone's got pain thresholds, right? Um, and chasing discomfort, it, it, the element of that is to is to push through that pain barrier smartly. You know, we don't want to run yourself into the ground. Um, you know, train smart, not harder, as the saying goes. But, you know, what's the sort of biology behind some of the stuff that the body sort of screams out to you to stop or, you know, what's what's being produced from the from the muscle you now with the lactic acid and give us a little overview of that. I think what you've just what you just said there actually um, encapsulates the subject area. Right. So you're saying, is it peripheral? Is it at the muscle that the fatigue is caused and that shuts you down? Or is it more centralized? Is it, um, you know, is it in the in the in the brain? Is it the brain and the heart and the system that's telling the body, you know, we're gonna 
we're protecting you from doing more damage like we're sensing that we're knackered or we could do damage you're taking away from the brain or the heart or whatever it's trying to protect the organ um and that shuts you down sooner so that and that's a debate that's been going on in in kind of in in the science community for a long long time and you have kind of a side of the coin that's um a guy called tim noakes dr tim noakes um talks about a central governor so he talks about this mechanism this almost regulatory system uh uh kind of sensor as you would that is constantly kind of monitoring the system and the body and and where it's at in terms of fatigue and recovery and any threat to the system that could damage it it's going to shut you down so that you know in a simple terms if you were doing um doing a really hard you know uh, run around the track and you're getting to the point where you can't breathe anymore and the lactic is building in your legs you know is that you know tim noakes might say that the central governor is is restricting you when you get into the limits of your physical performance from then hurting the body because you're if if all the energy and the oxygen and the blood is being directed to the muscles and not the brain or the heart then you could obviously ultimately you would die and that's a dr really dramatic kind of um uh, kind of end you know what could happen but it, and your body that central governor is not going to allow you to get to that point and that would it would explain why some people have like a higher tolerance so their central governor is is maybe more relaxed or it's become more hardened over time to intense training and so it allows the body a little bit more leeway in order to to kind of push it a little bit more so there's that side of the coin which is that central governor kind of idea but then you know like a lot of people will argue that you can you know like so for an example you see mo farah run 10,000 meters at the olympics right and we've got used to him that last 400 meters he goes doesn't he he goes so but but he's not run as fast a time as a lot of those guys for 10,000 meters right he doesn't um he doesn't hold a world record for the 10,000 meters and and you know your average person will say well if he can sprint really quick at the end why don't he just run a bit faster throughout and he won't have to sprint at the end you know <laughs> which does make sense right like logically um you, you would look at that and uh, you know anyone would and go well yeah if you have the capacity to sprint at the end then you're not you know you're not at your limit but a lot of people will argue that motivation and the psychological part is is uh is hugely important in overriding fatigue you know so we've all been there when you've um you know you've gone for you go for your normal run or whatever in an evening and you go to maybe you go to a park run on the weekend or you go to a local race where you run a little bit better you maybe beat your 5k time or your 10k time it's because there's a like an extrinsic motivation you know there's someone there in front of you or you might have those those people have you know we've all been there as well when you've got to the end of the session you think oh, i can't do any more like sets on the bench or the squats or whatever and you put a different playlist on your i you know your ipod right yeah. or you put a different song on on your phone or in the gym or at home or on the treadmill and suddenly you bang out your best rep or your best set don't you even yeah. though you feel knackered so a lot of people will argue well 
yeah, there is a central governor, but you can override that with like motivation, with psychological impacts. So maybe it's not just that. Maybe it is part of it. Maybe. And, and you know, like purists will say you can't cheat physiology. So if your body's knackered, it's knackered. You know, you can't whether you have Mr. Motivator standing there cheering you on. You ain't going to go anymore if your body's knackered. You know, like there is there is a a final determination when your body is at the point where it's out of glycogen it's out of glycogen you know you see those people hit the wall in the marathon right when they're out they're out <laughs> there's there's no you know get yourself fired up and you get back out there. there's no like glory story there they're done so you can't cheat physiology so there's there's a few different sides to it and throughout you know science research and scientific research people have argued the different sides but we still really can't put our hat on is it this is it that is it central governor is it peripheral it's probably a combination of everything you know yeah. but the one the one thing i love about um that element is that element we we talk about when we see an athlete like mo um deliver that last 400 or whatever is wherever you, there is a part of the human spirit that can override fatigue. I truly believe that, you know, like whether what there is just a determination in some individuals to get something done or do something. And, um, it's a gift, you know, and that can be, it can be enhanced. You can, like I said earlier, you can lay the foundation for it to come out. And that's what, that's what Mo did really well when he moved to America. He always had that ability, but he really started laying the foundation to, for that to come out in the later years. You know, and we saw for a number of years after he moved to America, he didn't win lots of things. You know, he was still underpinning that ability. But 2011, 2012 onwards, then it started to come out, you know, and then it becomes a reinforced thing. It becomes a learned thing. So his body knows how to do it and people expect him to do it. And then he's got a psychological impact on everyone. You know, it's almost like they come up alongside him and they think, well, Mo Farah is just going to outkick me. You know, it became he almost controlled him for a number of years. So it, there, there's many different elements to that. Uh, how we how we chase discomfort, right? How we override discomfort and fatigue, how we manage it, um, how we come back from it. Um, so it's a very complicated area, but I think it's it's also um, it's fascinating as well. You know, it's um, it's complex. Well, the the U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, you know, have a have the forty percent rule, don't they? They they say when your body when you think your body's given up and you've got nothing left to give, well, actually you're only forty percent done. You've got sixty percent sort of left in the gas tank. And you know, from when you watch an elite athlete like Mo, and I, I probably have more anxiety watching him in a race than he does because he trusts his own ability and his experience and his and his training that. You know, if he's hanging towards the back of the pack after the first few few, few laps, I'm like, oh, he's going to get his ass kicked in. But, you know, he, he, he rules them in. And it's almost like when that final bell rings, it to me, it, it's like he's prepared to black out. He's prepared yeah. to, to to get over that. And he will empty the tank. And he, and he knows his body and his race technique better than anyone else because it's obviously him. But he what he's got left and he is going to give it the absolute every sort of last ounce of effort that he's got to just rip away from the rest of his competition and and, and win you know 
and that that to me like you said you touch on your your brain might be telling you for nine thousand uh, you know nine point six k in a 10k but you're hanging on you don't and you hear that ding a ling a ling and it's like it's the it's that performance time it's his time to shine and he, and he like you say just kicks on and leaves other elite world athletes like pictures you know you get that 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 same sort of feeling, like you say, when your power song comes on. You know, you you could be beat, and then your favourite song comes on, and you're jumping around like a, you know, you're a an illegal house rave or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, I mean, like we've all been there, right, in the gym where you're going for um, you might be going for a one or a two or a three rep max. You know, a new you're going for a new PB on a on an exercise, and you just can't do it. You know, you just literally can't get that bar up you know in a in a clean or you know you, you're you're squatting you just can't quite get to that position and and let out and the spotter has to come in right and you know like nine times out of ten if you if you remove yourself walk out the gym you know walk out walk away you take a couple of minutes you're recovered you're physically recovered but you need to reset your brain and stop thinking i can't lift this bar when you know you can right and you come back in and you reset and you check your position again and you you lift it don't you you lift it and you go why couldn't i fucking do that two minutes ago right yeah. and it, and you were talking about the hills and doing the short hills and you said you took a little bit longer to get down the hill and then you turned and you knew that mindset when i hit that sign doesn't matter i've got to go you know and that's what it is and i, I actually said this this morning we were out on the trail with an athlete and she was doing well and we got to the last couple of reps we we're doing two minute efforts and i really wanted her to crank out the last couple um which she hadn't done in a long time and i said to her let's take an extra 30 seconds but i'm not giving you an extra 30 seconds before this last rep for you to physically recover because you're, you're recovered i want you just to think about this last rep getting out and then that the second half holding that's all i want you to do for this next extra 30 seconds just think about that and she nailed it on the last one, and that and that's exactly what we're talking about is is how do you how do you get this space into the same place where this you know the the body can follow you know and that's once you can figure out that and you can sell it and market it you're going to be a billionaire. <laughs> well, the, the visualization visualization and the belief, um, you know, I, I've done I've beat myself up with countless lifts before I've even got to the bar. Yeah, um, you know that that comes with experience. You know, no one who's never done Olympic weightlifting is going to walk up and clean and jerk 150 kilos because no. you know that's 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 beyond the beginner's sort of reach. But um, to just maybe put aside the ego and forget the weight or or forget the time. Like some of my best runs have been where I've been on my own and I thought I'm just going to go out for a slow trot. And my first couple of miles are my slowest two miles, and my fastest couple of miles are the last two. And and that to me, from from going out with a group that I consider would be sort of you know I'd be pushing to hang with. Um, when I look back at my times and compare it with the group that are that are you know run at a quick pace, I'm like, well actually the run on my own where I went off slow but finished strong was actually quicker. Than me trying to hang on with these guys from the start at a pace that I'm not I'm not sort of comfortable with. So 
I'm not too sure where I'm going with that, really. Well, but... no, it's, it's very similar to what I just said about the um, uh, about the the Mo fact, like people looking at Mo's run and going, "Why didn't you just run faster all the way through?" You know, an average pace being better, and it's 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 different. Like your body and your brain it processes things differently, and your the pacing strategy you choose um, can be related to so many different things. Um, uh, it could be psychological, could be extrinsic factors, could be environmental factors. You look outside and you see it's a sunny day. You put your shorts on, even though it's fucking freezing outside. You know, how many Brits put their shorts on when they see the sun, right, before they've even gone outside? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you also, <laughs> yeah, you also look at the sun and you go, oh, it's going to be a good day. I'm going to have a good run today. Before you've even got out there, before you even, you know, walk down the stairs, your mindset is I'm going to have a good run. You know, like you said about going to the gym, you've already decided you're not going to lift that weight today before you've even got to the bar, you know, on the other side of the coin. So, yeah, it's massive, massive part of it. And um, I think that's why you can't hang your hat on one theory in terms of like um, being able to manipulate the brain because there's so many factors that are involved. It's just part of it, you know. Yeah. Um, Got a scenario for you that I'd like your advice on. It's a personal one. Um, well, it's not not too personal. Um, I've got a goal of running a mile and a half sub nine minute thirty. Now, currently, I'm I'm playing around with um, I'm doing a bit of a stupid challenge at the moment that I know is not uh, is not perfect for performance and what I'm doing. But I do love a challenge, so I've signed up for something called the Character Mile. So that's run a mile every day in December. I'm doing it. I'm going to get it done. I'm not going to quit. It's more, it's for the discipline for, than the distance. Um, but my fastest split, and again, I have not really gunned it. And this will put you into sort of perspective where I'm at with my pace. Is that my fastest split of my mile I've done is seven oh one. Now, I will definitely go lower than that when I pick a day when I feel good and in the warm up I'm thinking I'll just go on freestyle. Yeah, today's the day I'm going to hit that mile hard and see what I get back with. But working on that seven minute pace, I'm looking at roughly ten and a half minutes for a mile and a half. I know it's not that simple because obviously you've got a greater distance. So if I'm trying to drop a minute from this mile and a half pace from ten and a half minutes to sub nine thirty. What what would be your advice or your tactic to sort of you know shave a minute off off of that time? Uh, you could lose a lot of weight quickly. That would help. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I'm carrying like a ten kilo weighted vest everywhere I go, right? Yeah. Well, I mean that's the simple. Like if you talk to a cyclist, you know that's huge. You know weight power to weight ratio is massive. So there you you uh, you could literally like in scientific terms. To increase your VO2 max, you know, you if you lost 10 kilos but you still ran that same pace, your VO2 max goes up exponentially, you know, relative to because because VO2 max is relative to per kilogram of body weight per minute. So, you know, you can increase your VO2 max just by losing weight, you know, which is where people get in trouble because they, they might lose too much weight and they lose that power as well. Um, so it's a balance. So that's kind of like the boring answer as like in terms of science. But in terms of planning your training, I would break it down just like, you know, Bannister did, um, you know, years ago when he broke the four minute mile. Right. He was ch chasing a, a, an arbitrary time 
but break it down so what does you know the pace you're looking at what is that per mile right so start with that and break that down like to what you can manage so what can you actually do at this point right now what can you how much can you do at that pace so yeah. say what is it so you're looking at six six twenty right yep six fifteen so right so what you need to do is the first of all is establish right what can i do so can i do 100 meters at that pace well yeah i'm pretty sure you can do 100 meters at that pace right so can i do 200 meters could i do 400 meters go and figure out what you can do comfortably at that pace right now and then develop like an interval session around that distance right so that that'll be your key one so maybe that's for banister he broke down the mile into it's four laps right so it's four laps of 400 meters i've got to be able to run each lap in under 60 seconds 59.9 or whatever to break the four minute mile so that's what he practiced and he you know developed doing eight to ten by 400 in sub 60 you know with rest in between and then he slowly put that oh he's gone Hello. Hi, mate. Sorry. Technical technical issue there. Don't worry. We'll, we'll edit that bit out. So sorry, you were saying what you want to do is try and establish. Yeah, so try and establish what, what can you do at that your goal pace right now, like comfortably. So what mm -hmm. distance could you run at that 615, 620 pace right now comfortably? So that it might be 200 meters or 300 meters or 400 meters, whatever it is build a session around that so like so you know sir roger bannister when he broke the four minute mile the way he went about it was he broke it down it's four laps of the track and i've got to do them in 59 seconds roughly right so he he would go and do a session where he would run eight to ten by 400 in 59 seconds and he would take whatever recovery he needed between in order to do that and then slowly over time he got to the point where he could put that together and run four minutes in one go in sub four minutes a mile so for you right now you could come up with a session you could go to your local track right and you could um literally go and run see if you can go go run a 400 in that at that pace so that would be what 94 seconds probably for a lap take take a bit of recovery might be take i don't know 90 seconds maybe one-to-one -one recovery so whatever you run it in you get the recovery and then do it again and see how many you can knock out at that pace off that recovery right so maybe you can do six you know maybe you can do seven i don't know so and that's your kind of basis and then i would go what we were talking about earlier short to long and you're long to short so i'll try and do mm -hmm. try in your training do runs to practice getting your body used to running nine and a half minutes, but they can be slow, right? So do nine and a half minute runs and maybe do three of them with a couple of minutes recovery between, but just to get your body and your brain used to running for that set time, right? So nothing yeah. more than that. And over time, those can get faster. You can start pushing those a bit more. And a great session for that kind of energy system is like a three by eight minute hard effort. So 
you know you're kind of working towards that kind of area anyway and then on the short end you know pick reps you're you're more of a power guy come from a background of like doing the intense stuff so maybe you do a session instead of do maybe you can do 400 or 500 meters at pace right now but maybe you do 200s but you do them a bit quicker so you run those at sub mm -hmm. six minute miling right and you enjoy it and you take what maybe you do jog 200 meter recovery in between you know so make it like like your hills where you walk down take your time but you run each one a bit quicker so you're getting your body used to running quicker than the pace as well so it's more mechanically efficient so i would approach both at start at yeah. both ends like that and then slowly work every probably maybe every three or four weeks you give yourself a depending on what your time frame is to achieve your goal but every every now and again check in and see how far you can go at your set pace so 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 right now maybe it's only 400 meters you can do and i'm saying comfortably not all out to the limit comfortably so maybe it's only 400 meters right now you do the, your 200 reps quicker you do these longer nine minute runs or whatever and variations of those two things in your training and then you three four weeks you come back now you try and run 800 meters at your goal pace or maybe you do three laps maybe you do 1200 and then you reset those things yeah so then you reschedule everything so now you may be doing 300 or 400 reps at sub six minute pipe pace now you may be doing 800 meter reps at your goal pace and now those nine minute 30 runs although you're running for nine minutes 30 maybe before you're running at seven and a half minute miling well now you're doing those runs at 715 pace yeah so you're you're slowly increasing the that sustained effort endurance on that end and i'd slowly bring those together so eventually after eight nine ten weeks or whatever you're doing you know you can do go on the track and run 2k comfortably at that pace before you know a few weeks out before you do that effort to try and get a mile and a half or whatever yeah. so i'd just build it from both sides i've got <laughs> me being me i always try to um bite off more than i can chew next year i've got uh in september uh, i've never run the marathon distance and i hate running up hills so i thought well what what better to do than do a marathon up and down snowden oh. so that's coming in september 2021 and the the mile and a half goal is linked in to um you've seen the channel four program sas who dares wins yeah yeah so the the fitness test this year um because i applied for it was max press ups in two minutes max sit ups in two minutes which i absolutely blitzed got you know well over what their sort of basic standard was but it was the mile and a half in sub 930 that just just killed me and i was playing around with pacing you know i can run a five and a half minute mile but only for about 200 meters <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but it's it's so do you think it's realistic to have that snowden goal and uh in the build-up to that have this mile and a half goal as well do you, do you think they're both achievable because obviously i'm going to be doing me long me long slow sort of zone two cardio building sort of style runs um hilly runs as well obviously to, for the snowden goal but then you know those track intervals to get that sub 9.30 mile and a half time i think it's possible for sure yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's not because because the the training for the snowden is only going to support the 
the aerobic side, that longer style side anyway. So you're not going to have a problem, you know, in terms of endurance. It's not going to be a problem. It's going to be the speed and the ability to take in the air and process that right on the edge of that VO2 max. It's a different, it's a different hurt from the, the marathon yeah. hurt. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and that and that and that training will only support the marathon training anyway. So it's not exclusive. I think like on the elite end, it would be like probably difficult to train for, you know, a three k and train for, um, you know, a marathon at the same time. Be pretty difficult. Um, mm. But I think for what you're doing, they'll only support each other. Yeah. Cool. Look, we've been going for nearly two hours now. Yeah. Time to fly with these things and i'm conscious of your time and, and the time of evening it is um before we wrap it up we just got a couple of quick fire questions that i always ask my guests um the same sort of questions so just whatever jumped into your mind hit me with it have you got a favorite quote at all uh I've, well i'm a spurs fan so i love or es facere to dare is to do <laughs> all right well We'll move on about that one very quickly, maybe in the West End. Um, book you've read more than once and why? A book I've read more than once and why? Um, I've, I've read, um, we were just talking about Alex Ferguson. So I read his book, the legend book um, he had out, came out a few years ago now, but I've read that a couple of times and, and gone back through it and looked at when he talked about leaders and leadership um really interesting what you talked about man management so that's one i've read a couple of times recently yeah cool uh your number one life hack and i think you probably already touched on it with the pillow but yeah yeah for travel definitely take a pillow with you um for um what else what else is a good life hack oh have have um dry chili flakes in your cupboard because it makes <laughs> anything taste good <laughs> oh, I had that on my scrambled eggs in Mexico. I've never run back to the hotel room so quick in all my life. That, that would probably be a good uh, mile. <laughs> um, your go-to quick meal, obviously got flaked chilies on it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can I can knock up a quick, um, a really good uh, prawn and chorizo linguine or tagliatelle. Yeah, make it real quick. Can t do it the t mm. time it takes to you know get a garlic bread heated up in the oven so that that's really quick and really tasty bit of chili in there garlic and chili in there cool favorite film favorite film uh i love a bond film so i love goldfinger sean connery just passed away recently uh sadly um, goldfinger mm. was great um love the uh the original italian job that's a great film um and love uh probably my my favorite film i've watched many times layer cake i love layer cake yeah yeah i'm, I'm a massive guy Ritchie fan yeah. you know even to the ones that um revolver that didn't get too much sort of press or uh, i just think he's storytelling just even hearing him speak uh he, he's a he's a fantastic artist and yeah I'm, I'm a massive he's definitely my my favorite film producer for sure favorite place in the uk Oh, I've actually, you know what? I've been really bad. I don't, I haven't been to too many places in the UK that are, are, are 
have like you know notoriously beautiful but this summer i did get to go when we weren't in lockdown i did get to go down to uh, devon and the, and the mm. southwest and oh my god there's some amazing places down there we went to um we went to some great places like even Durdle door and the jurassic coastline is really beautiful yeah. um and saunton sands i don't know if you've ever been there um near croyd um absolutely stunning beaches you know really beautiful mm. i love that i love the beach um but i also love the lake district um some yeah. great places up there as well i've done a, a crossfit competition down in blackpool sands uh, in the southwest and that just felt it, it was in the middle of the summer and it just felt you know looking out the sea you felt like you was in spain or portugal oh. it, was, it was beautiful and yeah gorgeous and such a popular answer and you know for for a very good reason it is um I think the closest that we've got to natural outstanding beauty in wilderness um you know clean air fresh water it's it's uh yeah it is that's probably my favorite place in the uk for sure favorite and worst exercise movement oh favorite and worst i love a full power clean like that's that's yeah. good um and you can spend mm -hmm. like lots of time practicing technique so that's good worst exercise um Oh, like something like um, split lunge jumps or counter move, like repeated counter movement jumps in a circuit. That's always the worst one in a circuit. I quite like a burpee, but like repeated lunge jumps, they hurt you. <laughs> like two days later, you just, you just, your glutes yeah. and your groin and your adductors and adductors just on fire for days. So like something like that. That a jumping lunge in a circuit workout is definitely not an exercise to to scoff at and think, oh, that would be simple because that comes. To yeah, you don't have to hard. even do it with dumbbells; just on its own, it's bad enough. Yeah, with the body weight yeah. movement, yeah, for sure. I've done like a unilateral piece on Saturday, lots of single arm, single leg stuff, uh, lunging uh, and and sort of box step up stuff. And uh, honestly, I, I'm still, I've, I've. I'm not 100% recovered, and it's now Tuesday night, and that was Saturday morning session. So, yeah. Um, favorite sport? F football. Dream car. Dream car. Oh, um, oh, like definitely an old Aston Martin, like like the DB5, like Bond drove, definitely. Uh, favorite sweet treat do you know what it's probably profiteroles is my, definitely the what i would go with but i we had a tiramisu the other night and it was so good i remembered that i love tiramisu as well <laughs> um maybe you could get like a profiterole tiramisu like a combo sort of yeah dessert. yeah yeah um ring walk song oh oh, oh walking in a ring for the boxing oh yes um Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably either one, either, either uh, um, it was a good day, Ice Cube. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Today was a good day. Um, yeah. Or um, oh, it's got to be an Oasis song, maybe. Um, like like Champagne Wonder Supernova or, or, or a Wonderwall. Yeah, yeah um what is your mantra final question what is your mantra when the going gets tough i think when when the going gets tough don't panic 
don't panic think and do be brave calmness is superpower right yeah i think i think you just uh, any 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 area of life like you look at um i've been fortunate enough to go and um, spend time with london air ambulance uh, which was really mm. humbling but those people the first thing is you, you know just stop stop process take in information and 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 then make a decision and and go with it you know be brave like be, have you know conviction in your action so yeah stop don't panic be brave make a decision those guys um, must see some real traumatic oh. scenes you know they're obviously going to you know super high trauma conditions and to be able to be on the ball make you know life you know life saving decisions in the heat of the moment you know it's it's not it's not a theater it's not a hospital it might be in the middle of a school field or you know whatever it might be that that takes a lot of um yeah you you've got to be super cool to to deal with those sort of situations before we go and i think it's very important for our audience to understand and i know you're a very humble guy but you are a very accomplished runner yourself um you know you touched on it a bit with your with your scholarship that you had in america but just give people a little bit of a flavor of of your skills so talk to me about some of your prs and your pbs um like your mile time and your 5k and your sort of 10 time what, what was your what was your all-time greats that you were knocking out when you was flying i was i was probably more a middle distance runner um i ran i ran like for for a legitimate mile I ran around 408 um, so like 348 for 1500 but I did run a sub four minute mile on a downhill course but it was at 7,000 feet altitude so and um, that was in Colorado and I beat some good people that day and I ran 358.8 for the mile but again it was on a downhill course mm. um, so that was probably mm. my best performance that I'm was still pretty good <laughs> so I, I technically yeah. I have run a sub four minute mile you can you can well i don't know if it's still up there but you could people didn't believe me so you can actually find the results online and i did actually run some four minute mile so that was pretty good mm. i ran like 151 for the 800 so that's not that quick in terms of general terms but decent and 49 for the um 400 um mm. so I, could, I i did have decent wheels for a skinny white boy so cool and um can, where can people find out more about you and, and what you do have you are you online you got um no i'm one of these weird people that doesn't have social media so <laughs> i'm i'm hiding <laughs> you're in the new club that everyone wants to get to where they're you know hooked for this dopamine hits of instagram yeah. or, or whatever it might be so you're you'll be starting the new trend i'm sure yeah so uh, i'm um i'm off the grid as it were but um yeah, yeah, I mean, generally you can, um, you'll find me at most the athletics competitions. I'll be at the major champs. Um, mm. But in terms of an online presence, I don't have one because uh, just um, I've tried to get away from it and have more uh, downtime when I'm off. Yeah, and I, I don't blame you. You know, like the experiences you touched on being away in, in Ethiopia and, and Kenya. You know, that must really sort of highlight the importance of of not having that those distractions and living. You know as, as close as to you can in, in back in the uk like that simplified life with you know without any of the complications that that come with it so uh yeah i, I definitely admire you for that so i'm just not very good at it either so I look like a tit <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Great stuff. David, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, I know Jay. people get a lot to take away from this. So, um, yeah, great stuff. We could, could have talked for hours, so we might have to do a part two in about a year or two, Simon. Yeah, well, if anyone actually enjoys listening, then, um, yeah, get me back on, but they probably won't, so. They will, mate, for sure, for sure. All right, thank you. Right, have a good one, Jay.